Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. In a recent episode, we had author Aliette de Bodard on to discuss the absence of mothers in speculative fiction. And one explanation she put forward was the focus of chosen one narratives, and that these stories rely on the protagonist achieving something great against all odds and usually alone, or supported by a small group, though rarely, if ever, including family. But this is by no means the only problem with the chosen one trope. Now, Many of you may know that Charlotte has long had it in for this trope, and we thought it was high time that we actually get to the bottom of what is so rubbish about this trope. So. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, like, it's time to take her muzzle off. (laughs) Go for it. So the chosen one trope does like rely heavily on the idea that the protagonist must conquer challenges alone. But like why? Why do we think it's so important that people do it alone? And like where does this idea come from? My main beef with the chosen one trope is that it is just so heavily overused. And I know it's something we're gonna kinda of come to later, but particularly in YA stuff or with YA protagonists and I think it is really exciting if you are really want to get involved in the character it is brilliant to have this one character who's absolutely fantastic who does these things um all by themselves with no help and if you're a young person and you're used to being controlled and told what to do and whatever to have this idea that um people will worship you that you've got a real place that you've got hidden powers that are going to come to the fore and make you stand out at a time when you're probably doing UCAS forms and they do that now um and all this kind of stuff trying to really stand out it's it is a wonderful thing but i do think that it's just been taken over so much and it is just so common and people don't really think about it i know we were talking about there aren't many friends and family in particular in it and I have to say that Buffy is perhaps one example, which the chosen one works really well. And you do have Buffy as the chosen one. And yet she still has this support group, which includes her mum. And I suppose to a certain extent, her sister, although there are arguments that Dawn is pretty useless for the first couple of seasons she's in it. So I have no idea where this idea comes from, unless it is the fact that every new writer, when they first start out, writes a chosen one trilogy uh, chosen one story because that's what they want to read they want we want escapism we want to be the person with the magical powers who has a clear course laid out for us how many of us feel that we just don't know where our life is going and feel like we're going to get to the end of it having done nothing if you're a chosen one that's not that problem your your course is laid out you're destined for wonderful things so I wonder if it is a lot of new writers initially is something that they really want to do because it is an element of wish fulfillment and it's just kind of taken off from there I keep thinking about how it this is almost individualism gone too far because we talk about how you know people need to be strong individuals we need to be independent and self-reliant but this seems to kind of take away any 
idea that it's okay to ask for help or that there should be a community spirit. And maybe it is, you know, that the kind of rose-colored glasses of nostalgia. But, you know, this idea of back in the day or like when you live in small villages and things where you know your neighbors and you could ask for help or you could, you know, a village could group together and, and actually fight the baddies together. Whereas instead now I feel like it's all very much, well, you have to succeed and to succeed you have to put yourself first and you have to do it all. And it's like you can't share praise or the wealth of recognition. You become too obsessed with you or the characters. The People in general, I feel like we're all so obsessed with the idea of us being successful on our own and it has to be entirely off our own backs. And I think that for me, The Chosen One represents that playing out in a speculative fiction story. Yeah, do you think that somehow that echoes survival of the fittest when in a world where everyone is out for themselves, Battle Royale, Hunger Games style? Quite possibly. And I think it's sad that we're kind of holding that up as some kind of Eden. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's completely... um... I don't think it's completely related to that. I think it's probably more related to archetypes and the hero narrative, um, you know, and, and the and the hero is very often a chosen one who is given a destiny and told that, you know, they are the only possible person who can save the world. And in that sense, I think it is quite close to um, wish fulfillment and storytelling and the search for the self, um, which is what fantasy is mostly all about. <laughs> I do wonder, as Mika was saying about the idea of it being the village and someone rising above, whether there's an element of class within it as well. So you've got, you think about a lot of the chosen one tropes, they're always just your average Joe rising up above everyone else within the village and breaking into a new class. It's almost like um, an action-adventure Cinderella, really, isn't it, from rags to riches? They quite often come from the poor farm boy background, so much so that that's become a trope all by itself. So I do wonder if there is something in that. Uh, And it does also ask the question, and when I was researching it, there was a website called, I think, Planet Writers, who said, the chosen one trope often ignores crucial questions. For example, if one man can do this, why didn't the masses just rise up and do it in the first place? And I think perhaps that obviously it's come out of a society where one or two people can make it to the higher echelons, whereas nowadays we're like, well, you know, we, we're all fighting for each other. It's not like in the old days where you were just fighting for your family and your own survival and trying to make your own way through the class system and, you know, be better than your parents. These days we all band together to make things better for everybody. So I think the chosen one trope these days perhaps isn't as resonant as it was in older generations when like they said fantasy was sort of coming to the fore where it was it was really popular Mm, I'm not sure because I don't think that the there is a maybe a little bit more now but the whole idea of the community coming together I mean I I don't see that I see apathy when I look around particularly in this political climate I think there's still definitely um, a role for um you know the 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 one to kind of stand out and stuff because people are sheep. Sorry, this is so cynical, but like we are sheep. 
Um, and we have a sheep tendency to just be like, oh, you know, let's not do anything. Let's just keep the status quo. And then someone steps out and says something that resonates with us. And we're like, OK, yeah, that person is someone to follow. Um, and I feel like this this kind of structure is still it's, it's it's like it's all over the place. It's kind of in social media. I mean, I feel like Greta Thunberg, you know, who stepped forward and said, you know, this is like it's a young person talking about climate. It's suddenly she was like the centre of attention and she was kind of we we're all talking about it. And everyone in their heart knew that the that climate, the climate change is a really big problem. But how many of us actually stand forward and say and put ourselves in the spotlight and make a big deal of it and actually kind of, you know, turn it into a crusade? Very, very few. Does that also come down to kind of the way humans work in terms of, you know, when you talk about, say, the numbers of people dying in a war, it it stops meaning anything when you think about it in, in terms of thousands of people. But if you give us the story of a single soldier, that's when it actually seems to, to make a difference. So in terms of like narrative and in terms of what people would identify with and really have an emotional resonance with, it's the story of the one over the story of the many that has that connection. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it was um, that was a tip that I read when I was kind of doing some research on how to write a, a battle scene without the, the great battle, you know, seeming very removed and, and kind of boring for a viewer. And a lot of the suggestions that I was getting were actually like focus in on the one, focus in on, okay, it's a titanic battle, but a titanic battle is made up of many little fights all happening within that battle. And if you focus down on one of those things and see how someone is, is feeling and what they're smelling and what they're sensing and if they're hurting it suddenly makes that whole experience all the more tangible for a reader i agree but i don't think it needs to be a chosen one and in fact i think it shouldn't be the chosen one who is the what the subject of being the subject of a battle scene because the chosen one is naturally going to be out there and ahead but this could just be a reflection of my taste in grimdark because the two examples i was going to cite as as good examples of this was george R. R. Martin at the Battle of King's Landing, where you're jumping around all the individual little people. And okay, they're all important in their own way, but you know, none of them are Daenerys flying on a dragon. Um, and I'm talking about the books here, not the series, I should just make clear. And I think you focus um on Tyrion and his fight um and Davos as well. And I was also going to use Anna Smith Spark, who has quite a few battles in her books, and as well as Marith, who is the chosen one, um <laughs> although the most unchosen one I think I've ever seen because he's just so horrible, um, You, when she does the battles, she does focus on him a bit, but generally she focuses on the other secondary characters within it as well and how they feel. And I think that, for me, that reads much better than focusing in on a chosen one in a battle who is just naturally going to survive um, or is going to have a, a meaningful death. I think it's a chosen one on the battlefield is useless and you're much better to bring empathy to your readers by focusing on those people who may or may not die and who will be suffering along with the masses. Yeah. So Charlotte, you mentioned that, you know, you don't think that the chosen one is going to die in the battle. So this does raise the problem of stakes. Like how do you raise the stakes in a story with a chosen one? If the readers or the viewers are going to think, well, 
it doesn't really matter because the chosen one is obviously going to survive. I mean, how do you keep the tension? Well, survival is only, in a way, it's the the least of part of the story. I mean, I think all of us, to a certain extent, have um have a belief that the we you know when you encounter a main character that they are probably going to make it through to the end. Um, but it's the journey that counts. The journey that is the most important part of that for me. I mean, I kind of don't really think about the end. I want to be with that character kind of as they develop and and, and I want to see the world with them. So I, I kind of feel like it's not so much of an issue that I know that they're not going to die or, or you know. I, I mean, but then today, because this is such a well-worn trope, a lot of the stories that are coming out do subvert it in some way so i still feel like this is there's this mileage in this and that there are you know a lot of clever writers out there who realize that it's a pitfall and that they're doing very clever things to kind of make that um you know to surprise a reader along the way i'd agree and i wouldn't say it's not just today as well i'm going to um alienate megan here and draw lucy into the conversation by saying that i think the lord of the rings by tolkien is a perfect example of subverting this kind of trope as well as sticking to the main elements of this particular trope so you have aragorn who is arguably the chosen one he's got the sword he 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 gets brought low it looks like he's all going to lose then he learns how to command the dead and he goes ahead and he's at the top of the battle and kill so many people, blah, 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 becomes King of Gondor and whatever. So you've got that chosen one trope within that. Um, but then you've also got, of course, Frodo, who is what most people think of as the chosen one, I suppose, within the, the Lord of the Rings books, because he does have a fate. He does have a destiny from the second that he picks up the ring. And you kind of know he's going to survive in the same way that Aragorn's, Arag- Aragorn's going to survive. But when he does survive, he's such a contrast to Aragorn. He goes on to live a long, happy life. And if we believe the films, have a son with Liv Tyler and, and all this kind of stuff. That the oh, no, he do. does. He does. <laughs> Eldarion, yeah. Of That's course. in the books. Yeah. And then you have Frodo, who does survive, but is so unbelievably mentally scarred. And I think that is something that a lot of writers are doing a little bit more to try and just change the chosen one trope although in a weird way they're doing it so much now that it is also becoming a trope in and of itself but I think Tolkien handled it very well that you've got these two characters who are both in their own worlds chosen and yet there are so many nuances and so many elements to it and the fact that Aragorn probably couldn't do half what he did without Boromir and Legolas with him and obviously Frodo couldn't do what he did without Sam one of them goes on to great things. One of them goes to a quiet life that even then he can't escape the horrors of what's going on. And I think The Lord of the Rings is an excellent example of of how that trope can both be followed to glory and subverted to just fascinating and yet at the same time tragic. Well, I think it's to do with the word chosen in that context, because clearly you've got the the kind of the whole hero and the broken hero um, and they're two obviously very different things and the the chosen aspect you were you were saying that oh you know Frodo was chosen from the moment he picked up the ring but of course he didn't pick up the ring Bilbo picked up the ring so in a way Frodo's whole storyline was kind of forced upon him by being the nephew of Bilbo who was the one who I'm not even sure if he's his real nephew you know that they are related obviously but um you know and and he even says in in the, in the film that he's just like I'm not like you Bilbo I, I can't I'm not built for this in Bilbo was built for adventure in fact it's almost 
ironic that that Bilbo isn't the chosen one in regards to like actually taking the ring to Mount Doom because he is built for it. He actually has this, like, I, you know, I want to go on an adventure. And Frodo doesn't have that adventurous streak at all. And I feel like this is half of the reason why the quest breaks him because he is, it's been forced upon him. Whereas Aragorn is a hero by blood and by birth and by upbringing as well. He has tragedy in his story, but he was raised by the elves. And in a way, even though he turned from his destiny, it's always lived within him, that destiny. It was Frodo was just, you know, like an ordinary guy who didn't really want to go to Mordor. Surely this whole thing about being, you know, not wanting this destiny is is all throughout Chosen Ones. You know, you see it all through Harry Potter and like it's 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 that kind of the weight of the world on these shoulders and there's so much to live up to and can I possibly be good enough? Or what does this even mean? And how much pain am I going to have to go through in order to live out this fated destiny and so on? I think that's quite common. Uh, though they don't actually, I think it's not common for them to think all of that in advance. I think that's quite a new thing, this kind of self-awareness, this self-aware chosen one. That's that's a fairly new development. I think generally the the kind of more traditional chosen one, all of this is implied, but is never necessarily kind of, you know, it's not spelled out to them. Otherwise, I don't think any of them would go on the adventure in the first place. I think they're just carefully fed the the right amount of information by like the mentor figure. Uh, and then they, of course, you know, probably are mentally and physically damaged by their experiences. So there's a, an excellent book about writing um, called Save the Cat by Blake Schneider. And there are other the other, other writing books are available, obviously, but this one has a, a common sort of structure for the novel, um, which deals with how you go through various doors, how you get to various points and whatever. And one of the things at the end is is his section that he calls It's Darkest Before the Dawn, the idea that everything is absolutely terrible and you just you feel like you can't go on. And I think that is the point in a traditional Chosen One narrative where all of this angst and all of this weight really bears down on the on the chosen one in particular and he just goes or she goes I, I can't do it it's too much I think now that this trope has been used so much and this um writing structure this, uh, for a particular novel is so well known I think people are now starting to put it a little bit earlier uh again I have to say Buffy is a perfect example of this where we kind of come into it you know, Buffy's already accepted her role and she does it but at the same time she's really doesn't want to do it and she thinks it's particularly unfair and I think that's an interesting shift away from having the burden of it weighing you down to being the sort of just before the climax and then having to break through it to actually just being part of being the chosen one I think there's a a very subtle difference but you don't then want your chosen one to be really whingy all the way through so you've kind of got to balance it if you do want to shift that angst a little bit further back and make it part of the character. Yeah I'm I'm thinking about um, Aang in Avatar The Last Airbender because when he found out that you know this was his destiny basically he was he didn't want it and he ran away and in running away he managed to get himself trapped for a hundred years but when he kind of works out that you know and and he's like really embarrassed and you know ashamed that he did this that he he left the world and, and to have all these wars and things happen in his absence but Katara says to him, well, maybe your destiny was actually to be here in a hundred years time. So it's kind of like the destiny that made him 
scared and run away actually led him to his real destiny. Yeah, because and that would that would put the emphasis back on individual choice rather than fate and or some godly hand directing you. Yeah. Because he chose to run away. And that's a very human response to a scary situation. And no one can fault him for that. But yeah, especially because he's 11. Exactly. <laughs> he is a kid. So <laughs> we, we, we just think that, the, you know, the avatar has too much responsibility. Um, but yeah, like he, he made that choice. And, um, you know, and then that's very interesting that they consider the possibility that, you know, what use might he have been if he hadn't run away and done the kind of heroic in air quotes thing maybe he would have thrown his he would have been killed or thrown his his destiny away or his life away um and you know so that means important it's important to consider personal choice in the grand scheme of things from a a narrative point of view i have to say that as much as the chosen one is quite annoying at least with the chosen one and the idea of it being your destiny and your fate as your motivation it's not fridging it's not having a dead mother that forces you to go and do stuff it's like i have to go and save the world which is far more positive than that bloke killed my sister i need to go and avenge them or something like that so there is that positive element to it and it is quite refreshing not to have someone driven by very negative emotions but driven by the positive need to save the world or save people um like they had in the matrix neo is driven in the matrix to save one singular person whereas they make the comparison that all the previous chosen ones had been driven to save the world in general but it's a it's a nice feeling to kind of go with a character striving for that and to save people rather than to avenge a wrong that has been done or a dead mother back home in the fridge what about Harry Potter then? Because you have a prophecy that only comes true or come because Voldemort goes, kills his parents, attacks Harry. If basically, if the prophecy never existed, Voldemort never would have killed his parents. Well, I mean, you know, there was still the oh, war. he totally would have killed I mean, his parents. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's take out the, the fact that there was the war and everything, but he wouldn't have come specifically for them. And for no. Harry to make that whole thing. So arguably Harry goes, you know, and, and does his thing because he's become the chosen one, but also kind of because this douchebag killed his parents. Like <laughs> Yeah, I think Harry Potter's a really interesting example because he is a classic chosen one. I mean, he's an orphan, he's got mysterious birth circumstances, he goes to live away from home, um, he's, you know, like, raised by people who don't understand him, he has the moment of, what's it, the call to adventure? You know, Hagrid, you're a wizard, Harry, and all of that stuff. And, and like, it's his entire storyline is almost, like, absolutely perfectly tailored to this. But, what I love that J.K. Rowling does is subverts it by bringing in Neville Longbottom and saying that actually there were two boys born on that same day that and Voldemort could have chosen either of them. And then that kind of leads to the fact that because Harry can speak parcel tongue, that came from Voldemort. Voldemort marks him as his equal. So he could have done exactly the same to Neville Longbottom. And then it would have been Neville's story. And it would have been, well, OK, what you have to ask yourself, what special gifts does Harry really have 
apart from the ones that Voldemort gave him. I mean, he he really only has his own kind of fairly like I wouldn't say they're mediocre, but they're middle of the road wizarding kind of <laughs> wizard powers to fall back on. Um, and that's what's so interesting that you know a lot of people have argued that Harry succeeds because of his support network and because of Hermione Granger, you know, the woman behind the throne, <laughs> as it were. Absolutely. And it it is an amazing, that's why it's such an amazing book and has done so well, because as we were saying earlier, that it's not necessarily important to do these things alone. And I know that Harry jokingly always does end up somewhat alone and facing Voldemort. But up until that point, he's got quite a strong, supportive background with helpers. And he, although he does have the odd special power, he doesn't have the super mega special power that will blow people away. And as so many memes have joked, he has one spell that he uses quite <laughs> a lot and um, that all of his everybody kind of gets to know. Um, but I think it's a wonderful example, as you were saying, of the self-fulfilling prophecy that there were two and Harry only becomes the chosen one because Voldemort was looking for one, pick that one and whatever. And I it brought me brought to mind something that I read about Willow, um, which I loved when I was yes, growing up. I was going to bring yeah. that one up too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the idea that, the little girl in that is the chosen one, but actually it's the helpers who defeat the evil queen because the the evil queen is so desperate to get hold of the baby and to kill it that everybody around them has to help. And in a weird way, the chosen one doesn't directly bring bad queen down, but she does kind of at the same time because if it wasn't for her, then nobody would have come together and they would have all fought and helped. Oh, it just drives you around. It's the same thing with Harry Potter. It's almost like which came first, the chicken or the egg? Was it the prophecy, the chosen one or the big bad guy's actions but doesn't Mm. this also call into question like the way that we keep talking about the chosen one and it's the chosen one like most of these the examples that we like have a kind of their own version of the scooby gang and yeah it's sort of it's just really insulting that all those the supporting characters are just left out and I mean, I was I was reading an article earlier this week about the scientists who developed uh, IVF and how there were two male scientists and they had a female nurse who helped them. And the male scientists were like, you know, she was an equal partner in this. We could not have done it without her. And yet the, the historical, like the plaques and things that went up commemorating like their achievements all left her off despite the scientists you know constantly saying no she needs to be on there but she was left out and it just this to me is just another way it feels like if i was xander i'd be pretty pissed that buffy got all the credit you know that's all i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> well i'd be more pissed if i was hermione seriously she works out oh, all yeah, harry's true. problems yeah. <laughs> like all of the riddles and <laughs> Yeah, it's great. And I what but what I like about the Harry Potter um instance of this is that actually how often J.K. Rowling has Voldemort say, You I now see that you it was only chance and luck that saved you from me. You don't have any special powers. You don't have anything that is that that can better me. It really is only kind of luck. And I think to a certain extent that is true. Like he he is very lucky maybe you want to bring the argument about love into it um 
that's a totally different thing. But, you know, I think he is very lucky. He's had a lot of really, yeah, he might have had a shit childhood, but he's had a really, really good group of friends around him. And he's been really well guided through his formative years from when he starts at Hogwarts. So, you know, don't play down the the kind of luck and chance and support element of The Chosen One. Well, a little while back when I was trying to plan a few works in progress, I sat down with my husband and we went through the Trinity characters or the Trinity of characters, if you like. And we started off with Star Wars. One of the things I found as I was looking through this is that the chosen one trope works really well with this particular style of Trinity. So obviously you can have a very special relationship with like um, Frodo and Sam, where it's just the two of them and it's kind of like a bromance kind of thing. But also the chosen one does feed in very well to a Trinity where you have the coming of age chosen one who, for example, would be Luke. You have the authority figure, which is Leia, and you have the rogue, which is Han. And they each have a story that seems to work really well. So the coming of age, Luke, he goes off and he has all the, learns all the powers, comes into form, whatever, but he can't get there and he can't get to where he needs to be without the authority figure, which is Leia, who comes along and gradually is very useful when pulling rank and they're the strategists. So that could be Hermione, for example. Exactly. Um, And also ends up being the conscience and can be quite prickly and lonesome and learns to become loving and, and whatever. And then you have the rogue, which is Han, who is the criminal. Yeah, like when authority doesn't work, is the loner, but can also fall in love, usually with the authority, as we found in the case of Luke and Leia, uh, sorry, Han and Leia. And, and Ron, Ron and Hermione. Hermione. Very interesting parallel. <laughs> exactly. And I, I found this worked in The Matrix. You had Neo, who's coming of age, who was supported by Morpheus, who is the authority. And then you have the rogue, who is Trinity. And... You know, it works again with Jack Sparrow and his kind. It works with Ghostbusters. Who else have we got? <laughs> I've got D'Artagnan and I've got Shaun of the Dead as the other ones that I used as examples. And it's just a, it's just something that works really well. I think if you want to do the chosen one who goes off on his own or her own and succeeds with no help at all, I think that works as a trope, although I do feel it's been rather overdone. And you can have secondary characters in that, but they inevitably fall behind. But I think a really popular one that does work quite well, and which I don't hate, I am very swift to add, is this Trinity setup where you do have the chosen one, but supported by authority figures and rogue figures who are influential in getting the chosen one to where they need to be. And they might not be part of the final showdown, as they aren't in the case of Luke or Neo or anything like that. But the chosen one couldn't have got there without it. And I think that's something that's been around in writing for years and years and years. Okay, well, Lucy, you did mention kind of with Harry Potter about the tragic backstory and the kind of the plethora of orphans. Why are there so many orphan chosen ones? It feels like this idea of only through great struggle can one achieve greatness. And I think Charlotte, you know, really early on mentioned this kind of wish fulfillment angle that when we're having a really shit time, you know, people like to have that idea that, oh, all this struggle is going to lead to something, you know, that soon my destiny will take over and I will be become, you know, live out my greatness and all this kind of thing. But why do they always have to be bloody, you know, tragic, depressing stories? Well, I don't 
know. I think it's it's really well. Okay, so no, not to blow my own trumpet or anything, but it was I, I did the same kind of thing where like you know set my first book in a kind of backwater town because that's you know where you start these stories. But I never wanted my main character to have a like crappy backstory. So you know she has a really quite nice upbringing with a fairly um okay it has a stepfather but that's a fairly like normal family stable family environment and she never went hungry and she was never bullied by her parents she doesn't have like you know the dursleys kicking her around um and that's just something i wanted to do because i got a bit tired of seeing like having them you know raised to be you know, like living in the cupboard under the stairs, like being kicked around, being feeling like they're not loved. Um, because I don't think you need that in A Chosen One story. I think it's popular, but I think it's very unnecessary. And there are lots of examples that don't use it and I think, and you know, still go on to become A Chosen One narrative. Um, I guess it's, m- people think it's more dramatic, that it, it's more like, you know, as you were saying, you know, it, only through suffering can you achieve greatness, which I think is actually completely incorrect. I think uh, there's nothing to, to say that someone with a stable, loving family background cannot then go on to achieve greatness. In fact, I would say that it would put them in a stronger position. Ah, yes. But, you know, the struggling artist and all that, it feels like it plays into that myth. Drama. Toxic <laughs> myth. Yeah. I kind of feel that it can be a valid backstory but I also feel it's slightly lazy writing because all of the motivation has happened off screen and it ties in with one of the key problems that I have with the chosen one narrative which was in the tv tropes link that Megan sent around which was that a chosen one is held in esteem for their expected potential occasionally determined by past accomplishments and I do kind of feel that that, those are the worst kind of chosen one tropes where they haven't done anything at all valid to suggest why they would deserve these powers or this magical sword or this particular attention or the leadership skills they have. They just happen to have a dramatic and tragic past. And then they just go on to save the world and do all these really magical things. Whereas I think if you've got a character who does have a stable background and also has some abilities that they can then employ later on. It's good foreshadowing. It's good to see writers expanding their skills and saying, well, actually, I'm going to have this character show their motivation, getting their motivation on screen. I'm not going to have that they've got this terrible backstory and they're an orphan and whatever. I'm going to show the forming events that really create this hero or heroine. And I think previously it's just been utilised by so many people that this tragic backstory And I think that going forward, writers are braver, more interested. I don't know. There seems to have been a bit of a shift where they will be more willing to show it up front. But certainly traditionally, it's just been a case of let's just throw all the motivation at the back. Then we don't need to show any motivating things. We just show all the action and adventure and then off you go. Uh, Whereas I think if you can actually see your chosen one gaining the skills, gaining the motivation, I think that is a, a good and positive chosen one story that I would like to read more of. I think to some extent it might be to do with the call to adventure because if your home environment is is really cushy and you come from a loving family why would you want to leave in a way it's like that like the fact that Harry has such a shit home life at the Dursleys like you know okay yeah 
all of us would be like, fuck, I'm a wizard. Yeah, let's go to Hogwarts. I mean, I totally I would. I really. OK, let's not even get into the fact that I wanted an owl to come until I was about 13. Um, anyway, um, yeah, like it's if someone came and said, OK, well, look, there's a great quest before you, but it's going to be full of darkness and struggle. And you were like, well, I don't want to take up the great quest because I'm having a nice time right here. So many of maybe many of these stories have to have these tragic backgrounds because you know, anything is better. Even potential suffering and, and a hard road is better than where this character comes from. It also makes me think about Charlotte's point earlier about the whole class thing, because it it's almost like the chosen one being the last person you would expect. And I think Aladdin is actually kind of the the epitome of this, where it's he's literally called the diamond in the rough. And it's that kind of idea that amongst all this kind of ordinariness, there's someone who is special. And, you know, again, going into the wish fulfillment thing, among everyone else, you know, if you're feeling alienated or you're just bored with your life, everyone else is just average. But I am special. I'm the diamond. Aladdin is a, is rather odd, a rather odd example because I kind of feel like... Um, you know, he's he's lives in abject poverty. He has to steal to to eat. He even has that in the Disney version. He even has that in his song. And you're like, would someone who is is his literally has to live in the gutter and it's at the lowest ebb of of society? Would they really kind of? fall in love with the princess and suddenly want to become a prince and may- maybe you would but I also feel like maybe you'd you'd have um you know a, a big problem with the class system that you know and the upper echelons of the <laughs> class system that left you in the gutter in the first place true but that's not really what he's chosen to do he's the chosen one in the sense that he is the only one who can get into the cave of wonders or whatever it's called and come out alive that's true but then it doesn't stop there. He is well, like, no. oh, that princess is hot and I don't care that she's bourgeoisie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hate the rich. Megan makes a really good point, actually, that you've kind of got a minuscule chosen one story within, and we are only referring to the Disney version here, not the many versions of Aladdin that have appeared in fairy tale since, but if we just focus on the Disney one, you are right. He is the only chosen one who can go in there. And as Lucy has said, it's motivated, not necessarily by dead parents, although I'm sure there's some dead parents in there, but because he's in poverty and there's, there's massive treasure. And in a weird way, what the reason he has chosen is also the reason he falls, because then he ends up, oh, no, sorry, in, of course, in the Disney version, it's the monkey that steals something, isn't it? And then gets him trapped in there. But Aladdin kind of lives at his chosen one role and then he's just left, isn't he? I hadn't thought about that before. And then he then goes on to have his own adventures after that. So that's a really interesting subversion of the trope where you have this chosen one who fulfills this prophecy for somebody else and also for selfish reasons, as in when he eventually obviously becomes gets hold of the lamp, his selfish reason is to want to better himself and he just happens to save the kingdom as a byproduct of saving the woman he loves. I'm not sure I'm really going anywhere with that. I just It's no, no, not no. something I've thought of before, but it is a chosen one story in one way and yet rags to riches and so so many selfish motivations in it that I hadn't really noticed before maybe I should rewatch that movie or maybe I should go see the one with Will Smith and clearly experience it from that side of it all 
<laughs> I, I actually thought you were making a very interesting point, which was that he actually Aladdin is only half. It's only half a story, isn't it? Like the the chosen one aspect of it really. It does his actual story, like Aladdin's story, doesn't really truly begin until after the Cave of Wonders and after the lamp has been retrieved. And it's only then where he can start to make up his own mind and makes his own choices and begins to shape his destiny. We clearly need to do an Aladdin episode. There is so much more depth to this Disney movie than I ever thought. <laughs> well, Alibaba had them 40 thieves. <laughs> I could probably sing most of Aladdin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Once more with feeling. <laughs> you can't be sad, Megan. You were the one who raised it. <laughs> yeah. I know. I love it. It's great. Shall we take a little detour and talk a little bit about religion? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> because it struck me when thinking about this trope that it, to me it seems like it has a lot of inspiration from religious narratives and... I didn't see a lot of discussion of that when I was sort of like researching around it. I think it's it's really interesting. So, you know, the the kind of the chosen one, we mentioned it with Aliette as well, the kind of this Virgin Mary concept. But there's some kind of incredible birth and, you know, the mother is often only there to give birth to this this being who is going to be the chosen one to save the world or so on and so forth yeah i don't know i think it's just really interesting that, that we have this kind of the chosen one this destiny this fate to save the world and it's one person who is the kind of a messiah figure um and i i just think that's interesting that it's come from religion well i kind of have to say that whenever you say messiah my brain always adds he's not the messiah he's a very naughty boy which brings <laughs> us to the whole point of monty python's life of brian which again does examine chosen one religions and i've I jotted down a few if i've never read the percy jackson um novels but i do wonder if there might be an element of that in there um as in a chosen one interacting with the gods who have chosen them. I know obviously in Brian you have the whole element of the chosen one and how terrible it is to be the chosen one or to be mistaken for the chosen one perhaps, um, which again was another interesting twist on religion and being the chosen one. But I think if any of them really examines it in depth, it's got to be Terry Pratchett's Small Gods, uh, which has uh, Bruce, Brother Bruther and he is the chosen one, but for all the wrong reasons in a weird way. He's he's a bit like Carrot, the Carrot character from the um, Watch series by Pratchett. And Brutha is the only one who still truly believes in God. And it examines why he's the chosen one and why his belief is truer than the other people he encounters. And obviously you have the whole element of the Spanish Inquisition. And I think that's a really interesting examination that is perhaps not explored in many of the chosen one novels like megan says they are all wrapped up at their essence with the idea that there is fate or destiny or god or the norns or whatever directing you but you never actually encounter that um another good example might be <laughs> um terry pratchett and neil gaiman's good omens but in case anybody is watching the amazon series or hasn't quite finished it yet i won't go into too many spoilery details but you do have the Antichrist, and then at the end he confronts religion and 
the background and the main powers involved in Good Omens. And that also has a rather anarchic outcome, um, in much the same way as the uh, the Pratchett and the Life of Brian do. So I think that it's an element that really isn't examined very much within the Chosen One trope, but could really, really do with being examined an awful lot more, along with the idea of why is it always teenagers who are the Chosen Ones? Why is it never the elderly? Why... You know, why do the people who are chosen never end up meeting the people who have chosen them in the first place? And what would they say to them if they did? I have seen some of Star Wars, but I'm not a Star Wars fan. And um, I don't really know anything about how Anakin was born. So what um, what about that birth? Why did they use a, a virgin birth trope in the first place? Was it to do with him being the kind of a chosen one? Of course, that, that went horribly wrong. Yes, and it, it is basically exactly the kind of fridging we were talking about where the mother's entire role is to give birth to the chosen one ah um pretty much oh and then to die horribly to motivate him yes so twice good for her (laughs) well done she she had a she was totally had a lot to do and fulfilled her roles (laughs) but see i also think it's interesting when you look at that one because you have this kind of idea that she gave birth to the chosen one but then when you know they they look back at the prophecy and oh no um we just read the prophecy wrong you know it was a different interpretation and that's what i find really frustrating with these kinds of ideas of fate and destiny and it's like okay well this this chosen one is destined to do such and such but then the only way that they can change their fate um turns out to be oh no they didn't actually change their fate we just read the prophecy wrong it was actually someone else or or you know that that really annoys me because it completely you know takes away obviously any kind of idea of fate and destiny takes away that the kind of freedom of choice that our actions have our own have consequences that aren't determined by anyone else but that it, it really irritates me that there's this kind of get out of jail free card where the authors can just say oh no oh oops i mean they they misinterpreted it i mean huh, problems of translation human fallibility irritates you <laughs> Only to the point where it's used to, like, get out of a prophecy, whereas if you didn't want to have a prophecy or a destiny or whatever, just don't, I don't know, it's just, it feels cheap. Is that what they do? Because I think it's really cool that Anakin is a chosen one and then is basically the chosen one for the other side, almost. (laughs) And they didn't realise that. I think that's, I think it's sad that they backtracked on that because I think they should totally have just seen it through and been like, no, no. He's the chosen one, but we just kind of fucked up a bit. (laughs) Well, I read on one of the bits of research I was doing that Anakin really is the chosen one because at the end it's not, sorry, spoilers, but if you haven't seen the film (laughs) from the 1970s, you really need to. Technically 1983, but you know. know, Even as I said it, I was like, (laughs) Megan's going to correct me because, of course, um, Return of the Jedi was the 1980s. It was the original that was in the 70s. So, with Megan's addendum, uh, if, <laughs> I really like the fact that in Return of the Jedi, at the very end, it's not Luke Skywalker, the huge chosen one that has been built up all the way through, who has been the hero and the, the wonderful boy. It's not him who defeats the ultimate bad guy. It is Anakin, a.k.a. Darth Vader. And, I mean, I think that was one of the genius of the original stories with George Lucas, that, it, again... Mm. 
you've got the whole Trinity bit that we spoke about earlier, but then also this wonderful bit at the end where you've got Luke Skywalker built up for three films and then he's just basically dying and his father saves him. Sorry, more spoilers. Please watch the film. I mean, (laughs) but, and that, that ties in quite nicely with the original prophecy in that, you know, it was Anakin who was due, due to bring balance to the force. It just took a whole lifetime several genocides and the torture of his son to actually bring that about yeah well and nothing is easy i mean is he expected exactly. to be easy actually in a weird in a weird way it it did kind of work if you view it that way that he is still the chosen one because ultimately he is the one who kills um palpatine and i don't know whether he brings balance to the force because he wipes out the sith but then i suppose the jedi have also been wiped out so i don't know but that's another that is another element entirely i do still like the idea that at the end of return of the jedi in the last half an hour anakin is still the chosen one who wins and all it always feels like the last three films for poor luke skywalker were nothing <laughs> upstaged by his father <laughs> yes the the prequel series like now that i'm thinking about the prequel trilogy i'm thinking actually we're kind of we were given the wrong perspective because it's really the chosen one story of Palpatine and his uh, supporting character, Anakin, who helps him lead out his prophecy of becoming like the, you know, where he talks about the... Oh, yeah. Good point. Overtaking, you know, the previous master and so on and so forth. Like, we're we're actually, that is a chosen one story. It's just, it's not Anakin's chosen one story. (laughs) Palpatine's. This is so interesting. So, so can we apply the chosen one trope to the villain narrative? Clearly, we can. Yes, I think so. What's interesting is when I was thinking about this, I could actually think of a good couple of examples. And now Megan's one is going to the top of the list. This whole idea of Palpatine as being the chosen one—I really like that. But I mean, way back in the. Oh, now I don't know, 1979 to 80s. I'm, I'm sure that our valued listeners, one in particular, will um, correct me. But Thomas Covenant novels um, by Stephen Donaldson, he was kind of, I know he was supposed to be the hero and I know he was supposed to be the chosen one, but he was a complete bastard. And I mean, it starts with rape and he's a leper. Not that there's anything wrong with being a leper at all, but that is a, a major part of the character and he has a lot of self-loathing. And... I kind of got to the end of it having enjoyed it, but at the same time not liking him very much, despite him being the the chosen one and despite him actually saving people. And it seemed that the only reason he actually got there to saving people is because everybody was willing to overlook the terrible hate crimes he had committed in the process. And if we're looking a bit more modern, I obviously have to give a shout out to my favourite grimdark author, Anna Smith-Spark, who has Prince Marith in her Empires of Dust books. And he is the chosen one, and particularly in the second book, they make a big thing of he's the chosen one of a demon. And you follow him and you kind of root for him at the same time. You also go, he's committing genocide and he's really horrible. And his secondary characters are desperately trying to kill him. And even the woman he's in love with and who loves him is trying to kill him. But because he's the chosen one, he keeps escaping. And it's a wonderful dichotomy of you are the chosen one, you have all this power. But at the same time, you're using that power for terrible evil. And you know you should die and everyone around you knows you should die. But because you're the chosen one, you keep having good luck and you have this charm and charisma and you just keep going. So I think that if you really want to read a very good chosen one story that focuses on villainy instead of heroism, I'd bypass Thomas Covenant um, and go straight for Empires of the Dust. 
Um, <laughs> I don't know if this show is turning into the recommend Anna Smith Spark show. Sorry. <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, hang on a minute. No, okay. it's good. I, I will, I will, for the sake of balance no. and, and not having a, a show sponsored by Anna Smith Spark or RJ, <laughs> which is our usual go-to sponsor, I was also interested to read that Battlestar Galactica, the reimagined, reinvented, rebooted, whatever you want to call it, the most recent series, does have about five or six chosen ones in it. And some of them are not very nice. I mean, you could argue that Baltar is a chosen one and is also a terrible villain. And I know that obviously in the original Battlestar Galactica, Baltar was very definitely the villain. And this one, he's a bit more ambiguous, but he's still very selfish. He, again, still causes genocide, which seems to be a theme with certain chosen ones. But that's there are a lot of chosen ones to choose from there. And some of them are good, some of them not so good. And I think Battlestar Galactica just went, we've got so many people, let's just have all of the storylines we possibly can. But it does produce a very interesting take on all the different tropes that they have. Um, and I think, again, along with the other ones I mentioned, it, it's a very good example of taking something that's well-established and is usually for the good guys and kind of going, yeah, but what if the bad guys are chosen as well? Before we get too far away from religion... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we're already miles away from I it. know, but I really <laughs> wanted to talk about one thing in particular. Go for it. Well, well that's okay because there's a lot of religion in Battlestar Galactica, so there, I have neatly segued us back to religion. Yes, there is a lot of religion in Battlestar. But I, <laughs> <laughs> two of sort of my favourite examples of the Chosen One where like, I actually like the Chosen One as a trope um, are Buffy and Avatar, The Last Airbender. And... I think it's interesting that you can very clearly see the inspiration from real life religion for those with the Dalai Lama because of the whole, you know, reincarnation of the chosen one, uh, you know, down the line over and over and over again. Um, and I just think that's really interesting that, again, it, although it's a different kind because it's it is chosen one, but it's not sort of, you know, the, the Anakin Skywalker type chosen one, but you have rather than the um a, a christian messiah figure maybe um you have then the dalai lama as inspiration as well and i think that's really cool i would have to add the matrix to that one because you have the whole idea that it's all cyclical and yes. that the one rises up every now and again causes complete devastation has a complete purge and then it all just starts up all over again which i thought was quite an interesting idea, and I know obviously the, the whole point of the Matrix films is you see the end, but I'd almost be interested to see a prequel to it where you do see the Chosen One rise up, fulfill their fate, and then nothing changes and it just keeps going back because it is just, you know, permanently cycling around. I think that is a, an interesting point. And I mean, Buffy just massively looked at the reincarnation trope, particularly at the end when there was pretty much all of them and they were like oh we must speed up the choosing process so that we can all be slayers at once which i thought was kind of taking the idea and winding up until the knobs dropped off basically i thought it was interesting about uh, the matrix where you know that you just said that it's like the chosen one's fate may not be the end of the story you know that it may just be an episode in a much larger cyclical narrative but I was yeah I kind of like that idea because it seems to it, it doesn't quite disenfranchise the chosen one but it certainly makes them seem less ordained and in a way less important in the grand scheme of things oh and can I just say first of all if you haven't watched Battlestar Galactica reimagined definitely go watch it 
But second of all, you also had the reincarnation theme in that as well, or at least the repetition theme, which Megan will agree with me if she remembers the very last episode. What's the phrase? Um, all this this has happened will happen again. Uh, and I know it's obviously a social commentary on the state of AI in our current society. But again, you have that idea of, of reincarnation or at least um, a cycle that is repeating. And I, it's interesting that both Buffy and the Matrix focus on when that cycle is broken or when that cycle is disrupted. Again, I think there would be quite an interesting book to be made out of reincarnation happening and just everything that the chosen one has done not quite being for nothing but being taken in the grand scheme of things and i remember there were some books by Catherine kerr dagger spell and dawn spell um devery uh, series i think it was called and it had the same idea but in a slightly different way it's what if not so much chosen ones but people who were involved in a terrible tragedy and they end up being reincarnated over and over again throughout the centuries and it's all replayed to try and fix what had happened originally. Um, again, going back to the idea of gods and that's a, that's not necessarily a chosen one, but it does touch on the themes. And actually now I think about it, the character of Jill does have an element of the chosen one to her or possibly um, the guy who's incredibly old, whose name currently escapes me. Yeah, again, that's a, another one. I think now that you now that we actually talk about it, there's an awful lot of reincarnation in the chosen one tropes, which kind of makes it interesting, but at the same time, kind of makes them not quite so chosen. It's just chosen for this round. <laughs> yeah, well, um, Wheel of Time, classic yeah, example. Of course. Dragon Reborn, reincarnation. I love the reincarnation idea. Actually, I mean, it, particularly in that, that's. Um, I really like the early books of the Wheel of Time. Let's not talk about the later ones, but I think. Jordan did really start out, apart from his extremely long descriptions of stuff, he did start out with a really great idea. And I really liked the fact that we had that prologue at the beginning um, where you actually saw the dragon. And then, of course, we introduced to Rand like, later on. Um, so I thought that actually that kind of reincarnation, reborn um, myth works really well with the Chosen One just because it adds an extra layer to the kind of like to the to the idea to the mantle of the chosen one that then the new hero has to somehow slip into as if you know and and the wheel of time does also raise interesting questions about um how you know rand slowly becomes Luthorin, who is like the original hero like he suddenly starts kind of have, inheriting his memories and he kind of begins speaking like him and it's like well is he being consumed by the trope is he being consumed by like his his identity and his upbringing has been kind of a slowly um dissolved by the idea of the dragon reborn and it's interesting we were talking about earlier the idea of it being wish fulfillment and the chosen one is wish fulfillment for the individual what is this idea of reincarnation or a cyclical nature is wish fulfillment for society if you imagine that you're a society that's down on its luck and again lots of stories and fairy tales and things obviously originated being told around the fireside with peasants and villagers and people who weren't the elite classes if you imagine the idea that you're telling a story about something wonderful has happened and the chosen one might come again in the future that's incredibly hopeful and whilst for the chosen one it might be a bit pointless for society in general, this idea that it might come around again and you might witness it and there might be great change in your lifetime. That's a really positive spin on the story that perhaps we don't see as much these days now that we 
believe in other things than gods and religion and reincarnation. Yeah, and I would add to that that those heroes, they're the protectors. So it's that not just that this great thing is going to happen, but the re- the protector will be reborn. We will always have a protector. There will be someone who's always looking out for us. Exactly. I think we should ask, is as a kind of conclusive question, can the predictability of this chosen one trope be a good thing in a story? Those who know me know that I love my grimdark. I love my horror, but I also love my romance. And there is nothing more predictable than romance. So I think in some instances, it can be a good thing. I think that it is a good story to read, particularly if it's dated writing. And Lord of the Rings is always going to be a great read. I still think today you can probably do The Chosen One well. I mean, we have mentioned Anna Smith-Spark as one good one. Terry Pratchett a little bit further back. Obviously, Willow. I think there is more to explore in the chosen one trope and I think it is so carefully interlinked with society that you can use that predictability to create a rip-roaring adventure that you just churn out and is enjoyable and fun because it's nostalgic and it's what's the phrase bubble gum for the brain it's just easy you just chew it over you have a bit of fun it's all great but I also think that the predictability can be used to misinform readers to misdirect them and I think there's a lot of opportunity for that and people are beginning to exploit that and look at the chosen one trope and see how they can incorporate it but at the same time also work around it I think it's a really fun trope if you actually think about it but if you don't think about it and just pick it out of a a writing book and go oh that's one for me and write it down you're not going to be writing anything original that doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to be good it's just going to be fairly obvious and there can be fun in that but also there's a lack of originality. Yeah, I agree. I think it can definitely be used to kind of keep a reader on their toes and um, especially, yeah, to this kind of misdirection. I think it's also fun, you know, to to open a book and approach it with a certain amount of expectation, like I know where this story is going, and then just be surprised when maybe it doesn't go in in the way that you think it is I mean like I'm watching Full Metal Alchemist at the moment and I think that's a really great example of potential chosen ones you know where actually their entire situation is manufactured by themselves and while um you know Edward has a certain like amount of ability um you know how much of that came about because of the situation that you know that he he and his brother did a terrible terrible thing when they were young so it's like uh, you know there's always there's always different ways to take it and you know there's always you can you know like we've we've talked about um the tragic backstory and the fact that you don't have to have a tragic backstory i think there are like plenty of elements of this trope which you can kind of swap up and change and be like an, an experiment because I, d- I certainly don't think it's something that you have to you know definitely use it but you know it's not it's not something that you kind of have to adhere to like with a will of iron i think it's there's like a lot of a lot of um a lot of miles in it yet absolutely and megan said earlier about raising the stakes um and it's trying to keep the tension and the advantage of having a chosen one is that because they are so powerful you can have a really powerful kick-ass bad guy and they have so much fun to write and they are massively fun to read and that is a definite bonus to the chosen one that once you start bringing in you know 
celestial firepower for your side you can bring in demonic firepower for the other side and it just makes it into a really epic battle and sometimes what you want is just a really good everybody throwing fireballs and spells and just kicking the crap out of each other and that is the essence of the chosen one trope that's what it all builds up for let's face it all of that angst all of that doubt whatever is for that final Mm. battle scene where good triumphs over evil possibly good has to make a sacrifice but at the end you come away from it feeling really good and if it's done well the chosen one trope still has a really strong place in fiction i would say but only if it is done well a writer needs to understand what has gone before what has worked what hasn't and possibly tinker with it to give us something new and interesting now lucy said that this was a good wrap-up question but i'm gonna take it one further I don't know if we, you know, have time to talk about it right now, but I would like to point out how many of these chosen one narratives that we've talked about featured a chosen woman. Uh, Willow? <laughs> Clearly a, a female baby. Yeah, um, but then she's didn't... not the title character though. Yeah, or and I she didn't actually do anything. <laughs> but that that's filled with quite strong women. Um and to be honest, do you really need any other chosen one women after you have Buffy? Because well, you know, yes, ultimate chosen that, one. That there's like a whole load of genre, like all these texts, and we name no. Buffy and Willow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a this could be a really great episode, actually, <laughs> but also a really lame episode because I'm going to be like, fuck, think of all the women. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually the, the problem is the women who the the women who are coming to mind are not chosen ones in the sense of the, the traditional chosen one narrative. They're amazing characters, but they're not chosen ones. You know, and that's suddenly a bit worrying. <laughs> Could yep. I throw in Battlestar? Obviously, as we talked about, we've got Cara Thrace, one of my favourite characters. So much my favourite that whenever they go into Starbucks and I, they say, "What's your name?" I always say Cara, just for the um, amusement of it all. Um, can we add in Alien, do we think? I don't know, particularly Alien 3. One? I've not seen we- Alien 3. Oh, well, she's kind of the chosen one in that, and then possibly the chosen one in Alien uh, Resurrection. Oh, <laughs> ironically written by Joss Whedon, of course. But what about the difference between a chosen one and a main character? I mean, like, I feel like sometimes this is a very fine line, you know, like that there's a, a main character with with chosen one elements to them but not we're not talking about the official kind of tropey chosen one narrative like they are quite distinct because i can think of you know like i was literally just glancing at my bookshelves and i can see trudy canavan like staring out at me like black you know the black magicians um is it black magician trilogy the, oh i love those yeah yeah really great like and she's a, a great character and you think well she's also very unusual she comes from the poor and she isn't like a part of the noble house but does that make her a chosen one? I don't think so. I think it makes her the main character of this particular trilogy um, because there's no like prophecy surrounding. It. I mean, that that's another question. Do you have to have the prophecy surrounding them or can they simply just be in the right place at the right time being looked up to by certain people? Does that make them the chosen one? So I feel like, you know, the, the parameters of being a chosen one are extremely broad. <laughs> Yes, that's an interesting point. Does there have to be a particular element within a chosen one? So if we take my example of Alien Resurrection, I was thinking that um, Ripley and that is kind of chosen 
not less time by gods, but by scientists. And she comes out of it with superpowers and she has to try and save the world. And she's the only one who can face down the alien and save everybody from the baby alien. But yeah, is that just a main character? Is that a chosen one? What are the requirements for a chosen one character? Is it is it predestination? Is it a holy book? Is it simply people expecting a hero to rise from the ashes and if a hero does rise from the ashes does that then make them the chosen one even though there isn't any necessary kind of prophecy surrounding their their rise to power Mm, yeah interesting i think also you need to draw the distinction between the chosen one as seen by the people in the story and the chosen one as seen by the readers or viewers enjoying the story that is put before them because obviously Think of Alien Resurrection, I might list that as a chosen one, but I can I can see that within the story, she's not held up as the chosen one, but she has so many elements within it that it does fall within that narrative device. So is there a difference between the narrative device and the recognition within the story? I mean, we're talk, talking about Harry Potter. Is he ever referred to as the chosen one? I can't remember. Yes, he is. He is. But yeah. not until much later, though, isn't Book it? six, yeah. And it's actually, more, he's more referred to as the chosen one in the Daily Prophet, which is in like a newspaper that's, yeah. that's done for its own spin. So, Well, yes and no, though, because the whole thing, like the very first thing is the boy who lived. The boy like, who lived. That, that's true. part of a kind of, I mean, that bit's not a prophecy, but it's it's certainly that, I don't know. Yeah, yes, but it, it's a good right. question. It's close to prophecy. It's close to it. It's like the fact that this curse has killed every single person who's who's been subjected to it, except this baby so that's already like laying the foundations for he's going to have a great life like great as in do great things i think we could dive down a rabbit hole here and we could really go on to decide what elements are the chosen one and we should probably have set these parameters like at the beginning like (laughs) what actually makes the chosen one we're doing it at the end (laughs) it's got to the point where we're not necessarily looking at the chosen one as picked by as identified within a book or a movie it's chosen one is what do we identify as a chosen one what does narrative structure identify as a chosen one which are three completely different things you know you could have a book where you have a chosen one um who is the hero of it but neither narrative structure nor the reader identifies them as a chosen one they're just particularly useless i can't think of any offhand but i'm sure there are plenty out there again one where the narrative structure suggests that they're chosen one but they're neither called that and the reader doesn't necessarily see them as that or there is enough debate or one where it's not referred to at all and at your point they'll go yeah totally a chosen one which i suppose could be in the lord of the rings and you look at aragorn who is sort of almost a secondary character and yet is at the same time a chosen one he's never necessarily referred to that or i suppose he is the destined king of gondor mm. but his part is downplayed compared to frodo although that might just be my reading of it because i really did love frodo when i read that me too. I was, when I was 14, I just I lived for the Frodo and Sam bits. So again, you've got this whole idea of, you know, who is the chosen one in that? Are they both the chosen one? Is one more chosen than the other? Is one more important? Is, do some people identify with one chosen person, one chosen character or another? Do some people say Aragorn's not a chosen one? It's clearly Frodo's story. There's so many elements to it. You could, it's, you have- there is. And it's just, you know, what? at the end of the day, it's just two people with a job to do. <laughs> Maybe that's what the chosen one really is. Just someone who gets shit done. 
So I do have one final question for you if we have time. The trope of the chosen one has been done to death, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't some good examples in there. And I wondered if you had to pick one example of the chosen one story, which just makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside and irrelevant of any flaws it might have. It's just a, a really, really good story. I wondered if you had one that you could pick out of all of them that you would definitely recommend reading or watching. Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah, that is really good. Oh, do we have two votes for Avatar? No, well, I... D- no, I don't want to say... I don't want to say what mine is because it's too embarrassing. Oh, come on. There's only, you know, several thousand people listening. It'll be fine. No. <laughs> well, I, I do... I recommend... I just say it a lot. And I mean, as far as we're going with, like, you know... It's because you said the chosen one specifically, so I'm going for one that's really traditional, like, with the prophecy and everything in it. Garion. <laughs> <laughs> i was like, surprised that wasn't mentioned earlier well it's so obvious and like it, it is and and i do have i think those that those series do have problematic elements but mm. I, they when you sit the comfort they're comforting like it is a kind of comfort read and he does have a very strong support network around him which is actually featured in the prophecy and they all have their own like prophetic names so that's quite unusual in that sense that he does have like this this really strong network but you have to uh, you have to kind of give it to him that he is born with great power and you know he does go through it and he does learn how to master himself and it is a coming of age story so it really ticks all of the traditional chosen one boxes and I don't think it's a great story I would have to say that for my choice being a typical lawyer I'm not going to give one straightforward answer I'm going to go for Buffy as my favorite chosen one simply because it was a girl and when I was growing up it was so unbelievably influential on me to see a chosen one being a girl and just kicking ass and then as a a little side one, I'd have to say um, Terry Pratchett's Brutha, Brother Brutha in Small Gods, because it was just so wonderfully different. And it took the idea of someone who doesn't necessarily want to be a chosen one and just takes it that little bit further with the wonderful satire and political commentary that is always present in Pratchett novels. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.